Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. APAC has long been a powerful force on Capitol Hill, lobbying lawmakers to support legislation that it believes strengthens and supports Israel. But the powerful lobby underwent radical change in December when it transformed into an actual political action committee, endorsing and raising money for chosen candidates. Ahead of the 2022 midterm elections, it is taking sides and raising money in key primary races, most actively on the Democratic side through what it calls the United Democracy Project, the pro-Israel group Super PAC. It has invested unprecedented sums of money into promoting centrist Democrats while heavily attacking progressive candidates that it deems to be anti-Israel. My guest on the podcast today is a Michigan congressman, a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and one of the progressives that APAC is working to defeat in his Democratic primary on August 4th. Congressman Andy Levin, who has represented Michigan's 9th District since 2018, is running for re-election against Haley Stevens. Congresswoman Stevens is also an incumbent House member. The two Democratic politicians are competing to be the Democratic nominee for the newly redrawn 11th District in the Detroit area. Congressman Andy Levin, thank you so much for coming to our podcast. It's an honor to have you on, and thanks for bringing some of the Midwest to the Middle East. (laughs) Thanks, Allison. It's great to be with you. Appreciate you having me. So for those of us not from Michigan, just a moment to get to know you and understand the context in which we're having this conversation. Uh, You come to politics with a background in union organizing, in uh, community organizing as a green energy entrepreneur, and you serve in the congressional seat formerly occupied by your father, Sandy Levin, and your late uncle, uh, Carl Levin, was a longtime popular Michigan senator um, from 1979 to 2015. There aren't many Jewish political dynasties in American politics, but yours is kind well, I don't know that. I don't I don't think our family is really goes for that kind of a concept, but we have a deep deep tradition of public service and my dad or my late uncle would be the first to tell you that they didn't start it. Uh their one of their uncles was the mayor of Windsor, Ontario, right across the the river, the Detroit River and he was a member of parliament in in Canada and their uncle Theodore Levin was a U.S. district judge and actually the chief judge of the Eastern District of Michigan, appointed by Harry Truman. And the federal courthouse in Detroit is actually the Theodore Levin courthouse named after him. His son, my dad's cousin Chuck, Charles Levin, was a long-serving state Supreme Court justice, which is an elected position in Michigan. So we are certainly a family very, very committed to public service in in the middle of the country, in the middle of the U.S., and a little bit in the middle of Canada, too. <laughs> so you're also no stranger to Jewish life. You were the former president of your Reconstructionist congregation in Detroit, the founder of a social action group called Detroit Jews for Justice. So I want, before we delve into uh, this primary and the issue of APAC, when you came into Congress, can you talk a little bit about how you saw your Jewish identity in relationship to Israel entering electoral politics? And then can you explain how your time in Congress over the past five years and your service on the Foreign Affairs Committee maybe affected those views? Well, my Jewish identity is just central to everything I do. Um, I think there's also a whole generational thing here that's interesting to talk about. Uh, my dad and and you know, his siblings tended to kind of bury the Jewish names in the middle name, where in my 
my siblings and I met, our kids are called like Kobe, Saul, Ben, Molly, my kids. We've got Nathan, Sam, you know, and, uh, Leah, my nephews and nieces, Seth, many. So we're just very Jewish identified in our generation, very proud and out there Jewish people. I'm one of two former synagogue presidents in the whole Congress, along with Senator Jackie Rosen of Nevada. And so that's just very important to me. And in terms of Congress, it's a lot of where my values come from. Uh, I mean, I'd say if you made me give a motto uh, for what I believe in, how I should, what what I should pursue in Congress, it could be Tzedek Tzedek Tirdoff from Deuteronomy. Uh, you know, justice, justice shall you pursue. And my, my really my whole life as a union organizer and a climate change activist, a human rights activist, um, and, uh, you know, all that is is based on those those values. And then in terms of Israel, you know, I've, I've always loved Israel. I've, uh, you know, I first went there uh, in 1990 <laughs> when I was a graduate student. And, um, and then I've always been a big proponent of a two-state solution. And so those things, you know, haven't really changed. And I guess I brought them right to Congress. So coming up to this primary, uh, you've been endorsed by J Street and heavily backed by their PAC to the tune of uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. On the other hand, the Jewish Democratic Council of America has endorsed your rival, Haley Stevens, along with the Democratic Majority for Israel. And most prominently, APAC has thrown its full support behind Stevens, who it says, quote, has a strong record of support for the U.S.-Israel relationship in clear contrast to her opponent. In January, David Victor, a former APAC president um, who is from Detroit, sent out a very strongly worded uh, email with a quite personal attack on you, calling you, quote, arguably the most corrosive member of Congress to the U.S.-Israel relationship, that you, quote, frequently and one-sidedly criticize Israel, defend, and even fundraises for its worst detractors. And he kind of characterizes you as a wolf in sheep's clothing, quote, as a leaven, a name which due to his uncle and father commands respect and admiration on Capitol Hill and making matters worse, Andy sincerely claims to be a lifelong Zionist, proud Jew and defender of Israel. So when Andy Levin insists he's pro-Israel, less engaged Democratic colleagues may take him at his word. What was your reaction when that leaked email was first posted on Twitter? Well, I was, it's just sad and kind of pathetic. Um, it's, it's really sad to hear people talking like that. I've known David Victor. It's, it's not like he's a stranger to me. I've known him my whole life. But really, what, when he says pro-Israel, he means towing the APAC line. I mean, you know, the idea that I'm not pro-Israel because I don't agree with him is absurd. I mean, I just had Ephraim Halevi as my guest at, at the Capitol to, uh, he was my guest and I had him, you know, brief members of Congress who were interested on the Israeli security view of the Iran nuclear situation and this relationship with the Palestinians. Um, I regularly meet with, you know, members of the Knesset, members of the government. Um, I'm super pro-Israel. I'm just not. I just happen to believe that the only way to have a secure homeland over time for my people is to realize the political and human rights of the Palestinian people as well. And, and that has actually been 
the official U.S. position of every administration, save the Trump administration, for many decades. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's it's just kind of very sad that this kind of po politics of intimidation and of, uh, you know, is, is uh, you know, so prevalent in this election, not just in my election, but in a whole number of Democratic primaries. But I'm the I'm the Jewish member, you know, one that they're going after. Most of the others are women of color from different parts of the country. Is the visceral opposition to uh, your uh, your candidacy or the preference of Stevens um, over you? Um, it, do you do you think this all stems from this uh, two state solution act that uh, that you co-sponsored and initiated uh, last September? That that legislation. Do you think that is really what's rankling uh, APAC and the sort of traditional pro-Israel community? Um, well, you know, again, I don't agree calling it a traditional pro-Israel community. It's, well, I think, J Street and Amenu and New Israel Fund and Americans for Peace Now and many groups that are backing the Two-State Solution Act are just as pro-Israel, just as pro-Israel as the right wing on Israel groups. And they just don't deserve to have any greater claim to that uh, title than, than the more progressive groups. But I, I don't think it's just because of that. They also, so they don't like, I guess, the Two-State Solution Act, which would, and, and there's been so much mischaracterization of it and really mendacity about it, but it's the Two-State Solution Act just says that just saying you're for a two-state solution without doing anything about it is just like saying your thoughts and prayers are worth the latest victims of a mass gun violence in the U.S. and not doing anything to actually reduce the epidemic of gun violence in the U.S. And by the same token, those if you really believe that we need to achieve a two-state solution, we have to get about doing something to achieve it. And the bill does a bunch of things we can talk about if you're interested. But there's more to it than that. Um, APAC in a very muscular way, demanded that everybody oppose the uh, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal in 2015. My dad and my uncle both strongly supported the JCPOA. And by the way, they were right. And Ephraim Halevi, by the way, said also they were right. And it was the right thing to do. Um, but and now they're saying that, you know, they're against the U.S. reentering the Iran nuclear uh, deal. That's not a U.S.-Iran deal. It's a, you know, seven-nation deal. And Iran is just on the brink of having enough fissile material to make nuclear weapons. And it's a big disaster for Israel security, U.S. security, everybody's security. And we have to stop Iran from becoming a nuclear power. So there's that issue where they disagree. They, they want us to, they, their position is basically you have to solve everything wrong with Iran before you agree to a a new, you know, to a, to a deal that prevents them from achieving nuclear weapons. I think that it's better to stop them from having nuclear weapons and then work on everything else as well. But in any event, they don't like that. And then I think they, they I think their biggest mistake is to say that the approach to people who disagree with us about Israel is to vilify them and other them and say they're all anti-Semites and I think it's a huge mistake. So they also always are saying that I must speak out against the first two Muslim women ever in Congress, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, and other 
people who almost all are women of color because they criticize Israel in ways that I don't, or they take positions about Israel that I don't. And I think that that approach is wrong. Uh, I think that uh, there's two separate issues that often get conflated. One is how to fight anti-Semitism, and one is how to uh, make how to fight for Israel. And I believe on on both counts that it's better to build as broad a coalition as possible, and to work with people, and to uh, you know make our positions understood. And so they're also you know, I mean, APAC puts you puts up social media pictures, for example, of Ilhan Omar, like with her face with missiles and things like this. And they put a lot of money into these kind of, you know, ads on social media. And these endanger her life. I mean, she's the victim of life of, of, of death threats all the time. And I don't think that's a way to deal with somebody who you disagree with on something. So there are various things, but the, here, here's the bottom line, Allison. I love Israel. I'm a, a supporter of Israel and always have been. I voted for all our aid to Israel. And in fact, the Two-State Solution Act reaffirms all our aid to Israel. I'm against the BDS movement. I voted to replenish Iron Dome. There's, I mean, it's really to, to use the kind of language that they're using just because I won't tow their exact line is, it, is it's wrong, it's sad. And uh, it's, it's not going to work either. So last month, uh, Abraham Foxman, the former head of the Anti-Defamation League, I can't even count how long he was uh, the leader of the Anti-Defamation League, uh, wrote a piece in the Detroit News that, you know, took aim not only on your position on Israel, but again, you know, you're we speaking about anti-Semitism, complaining that you don't, quote, meaningfully attack anti-Semitism, saying that to maintain, as Levin does, that this hatred is the exclusive province of far-right white supremacists is to ignore its place in the politics of the left. And by contrast, he praised your opponent, uh, Stevens, as focusing on the issue, not the politics, uh, basically saying that your um, your criticism of anti-Semitism is a partisan one in that you will ignore it to your left and only pay attention when it comes to your right. Do you think that was a fair criticism? Well, it's flat out false. <laughs> First of all, I have publicly called out anti-Semitic statements on the left. Um, I joined with or, you know, depending on how you define the left, but when Representative Omar uh, said, I think it was her comment about it's all about the Benjamins or something, I said that that's an anti-Semitic trope and it's not acceptable. When the uh, head of uh, Amer Amnesty International USA um, said what he, like, he said that Jewish people don't, whatever he spoke for us and said, like Israel shouldn't exist as a Jewish state, I joined all of my my Jewish colleagues in um, saying that that was unacceptable. So I regularly speak out against anti-Semitism in all its forms and wherever it rears its ugly head. And Foxman himself is engaging in anti-Semitic tropes about me in saying like there's acceptable Jews and there's unacceptable Jews and this is how a Jew must be. Uh, I mean, it, it's just crazy. Not only that, I've actually worked 
to reduce anti-Semitism and including, uh, for, so for example, uh, after Representative Omar said that, I said to my all my Muslim colleagues, there's only three in Congress, would you all be willing to have like a rap session about anti-Semitism anti and white supremacy and Islamophobia and so forth? They said yes. So I gathered 11 diverse members, four Jews, the three Muslims, and, you know, some other African-American and Native American and Latino, you know, whatever, white, black, everybody. And we sat down. It was facilitated by Bend the Ark, which is a Jewish group that is expert in this, such things. And we had a really meaningful uh, this private discussion about all this. It ended up getting onto the front page of the Washington Post because somebody or other leaked it. Um, and there was, you know, a very emotional thing that happened at the end. But, um, you know, it was a very meaningful thing. And uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was there, AOC, that people call her. And I said to her, well, you know, at the end, there was like a little, two people got into a little tiff and it, people were upset. And, you know, I said to her, oh my gosh, you know, was this worth it? And she said, Andy, this place is so superficial. That was the most we've gotten to know each other in a deep way of anything we've done. And you know what, Allison? Um, Ilhan Omar never said anything again like that after that session. That's what I call actually working on anti-Semitism. And Abe Foxman never couldn't conceive of doing something like that because he just wants to treat, he wants to treat uh, Ilhan Omar as an enemy and not get to know people, not get to understand people. Let's let's review. <laughs> there have been four Muslims ever in the U.S. Congress. The three that are there now, and Keith Ellison, who was there very recently, who's the Attorney General of Minnesota. That's it. Don't hold me to this number because I I did this research a long time ago. But something there's been something like. 240 or something, I don't know, Dem, uh, Jewish members of the House and Senate going back to the 18, middle of the 19th century, the 1840s or 50s. So I think there's going to be obviously some, you know, bumps in the road in building new relationships. But what do you think is better to build relationships and create mutual understanding to, to get anti-Semitism to have a little place at the intersectional table and to help people understand the connection between anti-Semitism and racism against Black people and hatred of immigrants and of Muslims and so forth, or to just vilify people who, you know, may say something wrong or make a mistake. So I, I think I've been more, much more active on actually fighting anti-Semitism than my, uh, than my opponent has. And plus, I've dealt with it my whole, whole life. I literally grew up in the shadow of Shrine of the Little Flower, the church of Father Charles Coughlin, the famous anti-Semitic and racist and Nazi sympathizing radio preacher of uh, the pre-war period in the United States. He was the biggest media figure in the country. And, you know, I faced a lot of anti-Semitism there in that neighborhood from, I guess, his followers. Foxman's other big criticism of you was that you were silent on Amnesty International's characterization of Israel as an apartheid state. 
Um, do you care to break the silence? Well, first of all, I, I haven't been silent on that. I, um, you know, I didn't jump through, I guess, Abe Foxman's hoop or whatever and do just what he would have wanted me to do, I guess. But in any event, I have said two things about this. First, there was Betselem, right, that came out saying that Israel was um, committing the the crime of apartheid in the West Bank. Then Human Rights Watch said that. And then Amnesty International came out with a much broader um, you know, claim that Israel was that the, it was an apartheid situation not only in, in the in the West Bank and Gaza, but in Israel proper. And what I have said consistently from the beginning of all of this is that I don't, on the one hand, to say that it's anti-Semitic to make those claims is wrong. I don't I think strong criticism of Israel and Israeli policy is allowed. Even and I disagree with it, but that doesn't mean it's anti-Semitic. It's anti-Semitic to say what the director of Amnesty International said, which is essentially Jews don't have any right to self-determination. We don't have a right to our own homeland. We don't right, have a right to our own state. I that is anti-Semitic. Push the Jews into the sea. You know that is anti-Semitic. But to criticize Israeli policy even strongly is not anti-Semitic in and of itself. I've said that. And then I've also said, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with that characterization. So those are the things I've said about those three reports, actually, not just the amnesty. So back to the nitty gritty of your uh, current um, political uh, race, um, you attacked um, uh, Congresswoman uh, Stevens for accepting money from APAC because they endorsed and supported Republicans who voted against certifying the 2020 election results. Then the Stevens camp points the finger at you for you taking contributions from other corporate sources who have also contributed to these so-called insurrectionist Republicans and calling you a hypocrite for criticizing her when you took also money from uh, from lobbies who uh, who gave to these uh, Republicans. So APAC tweets and asks whether you would return the checks. Uh, what did you ultimately decide to do about that? Well, so first of all, this is a difference in uh, in scale such that it's a really a difference in kind. Uh, my opponent has taken, we know of, I think at least $450,000 from APAC and other and corporate PACs and various PACs that are actively supporting insurrectionist Republicans, Republicans who voted against certifying the election on the, after the attack on January 6th. And it's not just, you know, APAC isn't just, you know, supporting a few, they're supporting 109 and including people who are deeply involved in Trump's big lie right now, like Ronnie Jackson and Scott Perry and Jim Jordan. So this is like halakhically unacceptable to me <laughs> as a Jew. I don't, I mean, I'm shocked and appalled at APAC's behavior here. And um, so actually the, the the Stevens campaign or APAC, whoever said, oh, you know, Levin's accepting this money too. Well, we were like, well, what is that? Because we're constantly reviewing money we we get and and we've returned money before for different issues. So we saw that some, uh, you know, basically some different corporate PACs, I think maybe Boeing and different companies that had given us money, had in fact also given money to uh, Republicans who 
support the big lie or who voted against the certifying the election. So Allison, I did two things in response. One is we identified all that money and I gave it to the Michigan Reproductive Freedom for All Ballot Initiative, which I, I am a big backer of abortion rights. And we're putting a, a ballot measure on Michigan's ballot in November to enshrine uh, reproductive rights in our state constitution. So I donated the money I'd received there. And then I said, you know what? I'm done taking any money from corporate PACs at all. Because maybe next week, some other corporate PAC will give money to some Republican, you know, who, who undermine the election and our democracy. And I said, you know what? I'm done with it. I've, I've had so many restrictions on the corporate PAC money I'll take. I hardly take any of it. It's been maybe three or 4% of the money I've ever raised in my congressional career. So I swore it off altogether and I challenged my opponent herself to stop taking corporate PAC money and to give away the money she's received from organizations that are supporting candidates who are actively trying to undermine our democracy. So that's what happened. And so far she hasn't done so, I presume. She has not done so. She hasn't given back one penny. That's right. So... I mean, I have to ask, with J Street, you know, in your camp working to fill your war chest, APAC on the other side, you know, um, uh, funding uh, Stevens so heavily. Um, so this race is getting some huge national attention. NBC News called it a proxy war. And I mean, I have to ask, do you think this whole APAC, J Street tug of war, you know, the whole entrance of APAC in, into the fray, I mean, is this good or bad for the, the Jews in Israel of, you know, when there's so many other pressing uh, issues on the table, as you said, abortion rights, uh, gun control, et cetera, that, uh, that you know, the, the Israel issue and who different lobbies are, are backing is, uh, is, is a focus of your race? Well, I just, I don't think it's, it's appropriate to compare J Street and APAC or these formations as being somehow equivalent. You have to realize that by far, that APAC and its allies have are, have said they're devoting, I think that just in Democratic primaries alone, APAC has said they have $18 million, not of money they're giving to candidates publicly, but of dark money that they're going to spend on so-called independent expenditures to attack and sink progressive Democrats like me. APAC, I mean, J Street has no ability to do anything of that kind. They're much smaller. And so really the, the biggest player in Democratic primaries this cycle is the biggest outside dark money player is APAC and its allies. And then some crypto billionaires, which I don't even understand, but they're also attacking progressive candidates. So it's, it's just a lot of conservative money. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, may come from Republicans, but they're devoting it to defeating uh, progressives here. I, the truth is, Allison, that in the Michigan's new 11th district, I'm going to win the primary because I'm the candidate who is running on deep values and doing what's right no matter what and not putting my finger up into the wind. And I support human rights everywhere around the globe. I've done, I was in China during the Tiananmen massacre, the anniversary of which is on June 4th here. I was there in 1989. I've, I've, you know, come under gunfire as a polling worker at elections in Haiti. I'm not going to back down from defending human rights everywhere. And I'm the progressive candidate on uh, health care, having universal health care 
in the United States. I'm the progressive candidate on climate change and do, doing something uh, aggressive about saving life on earth as we know it uh, from the, the overheating that we've subjected the planet to. Um, you know, so I'm gonna, I'm, I'm the union organizer in the Congress and I have the backing so far, I think of 13 national unions, uh, all the national unions that have endorsed in the race. There's eight environmental and climate change groups that have endorsed, I've been, they've all endorsed me. So I'm gonna win the, the race based on integrity, hard work, my record in Congress. And, you know, we will defeat these outside forces that are, you know, really want to have, have only candidates that tow their line, their particular line about Israel. And of course, the, the way they spend this dark money isn't gonna talk about Israel and Palestine. It's gonna talk about other things. I mean, when they went after Summer Lee in a primary in Pennsylvania, that's a, they said she wasn't even a Democrat and she wasn't a loyal Democrat or something like that. I have no idea what they'll do to attack me, but they will attack me. And um, I just don't think people will buy it because my roots in this community are too deep. I've been the chief workforce officer of the state of Michigan, and I've created uh, clean energy programs in the state of Michigan. My wife has created and run Girl Scout troops, and I've coached Little League sports here, and we're just deeply, you know, all four of our kids have gone to school here. My kids are the fifth generation of my family that's lived in this new district. My great-grandparents, Morris and Gittle Levinson, were the first Jewish family in Birmingham, Michigan in the 1890s. He went around with a horse and cart as a peddler selling things to the farmers in the area. And then they opened the first general store there in the 1890s in the heart of this district. So, uh, you know, I'm just running on who I am. I'm a, I'm a happy warrior for justice and a super, I do it in the most Jewish way. And, you know, I think we'll not, not only will we win the election, I think we'll win the Jewish vote in the election, which is a small percentage of it. So, you know, I'm sorry to harp on uh, APAC this way, but I just, you know, I look at what's going on in your race, you know, and as you said, uh, other uh, Democratic primaries. And I just think of APAC always trying to um, uh, present itself as uh, aspiring to bipartisan support for, for Israel as being a bipartisan force. And now they're like really in the mud of this uh, of this primary season in, in many of these uh, Democratic races. Um, uh, yesterday, Ben Samuels, my colleague in D.C., reported that uh, House um, Speaker Nancy Pelosi accepted the endorsement of J Street, um, noting that it's the first time J Street has endorsed her. APAC endorsed her this time around, but Ben says it's a sign, perhaps, that she's moved closer to J Street over the past decade and distanced herself from APAC. Uh, I mean, if this kind of uh, thing continues, do you see more and more Democrats, even the um, more mainstream, conventional, non-progressive, centrist um, uh, Democrats moving away from APAC because there's more and more of a perception that uh, that they're no longer a bipartisan lobby. Well, I don't. I mean, you know, many J Street has endorsed a majority of all the Democrats in Congress, I believe. So I don't. You know, people accepting J Street endorsements isn't anything new. What I'd say about APAC is that I, you know, I agree with the words. That I mean, it's a disaster for Israel to be treated as a partisan football. That'd be the worst thing. And unfortunately, APAC has contributed to that by their uh, very, the partisan way they set up the fight on 
the JCPOA, um, the and the, the a lot has happened that's been unfortunate. Obviously, when Bibi was prime minister and uh, and Barack Obama was president, Republicans in Congress went around the president and invited J, uh, Bibi to uh, address a joint session of Congress. That was a huge mistake in terms of on Bibi's part and on you know on whoever supported that here in terms of the bipartisanship um, and the positions that APAC is taking makes it very difficult to take them seriously. You can't say, oh, it's okay to support people who are actively trying to undermine our democracy because we're a single issue organization. Okay, I've got news for you, Allison. When we're not a democracy anymore, it doesn't matter what your issue is. You're not, because the whole premise of being able to petition the government is based on the notion of democracy and that it's in the constitution that citizens have the right to, uh, you know, to advocate their government. But when we stop being a democracy, that's not going to be worth anything. And so I don't think, I think um, it's not a question of supporting Republicans or Democrats. It's a question of, we all need to work to save our democracy. And then within that, it would be great if we all could have a pluralistic discussion about what the best way to support Israel is and to support peace in the Middle East and to achieve uh, what I still believe is the only way to have long-term peace, which is a two-state solution. And, um, you know, I, 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 I have not seen, APAC has never advocated, you know, I, they've typically come to my office twice a year they typically have about six things on their agenda each time. So that's, you know, I'm in my fourth year, two meetings a year, that's getting up to a bunch of agenda items. Never once has a single item on their agenda been something that advances a two-state solution. So I, you know, I would hope that APAC would sort of come back into the fold of being a pro-democracy group and a group that wants to work um, to lessen the partisan tension on Israel and Palestine and uh, really work to uh, support Israel and support peace. But right now it's kind of part of the whole group of organizations that have gone off the rails of democracy altogether. And it's a, it's too bad. Um, you mentioned the JCPOA uh a few times in this conversation. Um, and so I'll just, you know, leave APAC in the race for a moment and ask you um, about the, the current state of, uh, of talks with uh, Iran um, for my final question. Um, so reportedly last night, uh, Democratic uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Menendez, um, speaking at an APAC event, of course, he called for a new Iran strategy and an end to U.S. negotiations with Iran uh, in Vienna, those uh, ongoing talks. Um, Menendez said, quote, it is time to tell the Europeans whom we have shown good faith with that we were willing to enter into what was hopefully a longer and stronger deal that the Iranians are not there. Um, do you agree? Do you think it's time uh, for the U.S. to walk away for the table from the table? Do you think it's time for the U.S. to walk away from the table or do you think that these talks should continue to be pursued as long as possible? 
Well, we can't have them go on forever because Iran is so close now to being able to, uh, you know, produce uh, nuclear weapons, create nuclear weapons. Um, I don't think I really want to get into all the details of this, except to say that if the the administration has tr been trying to uh, find a way for the U.S. to get back into the deal in a way that um, fr that refreezes Iran at a good number of, mon of months away from having uh, having the capacity to produce a nuclear weapon. Right now, we're down to uh, virtually nothing. I mean, a very small number of days. Um, it was, they were frozen at 12 months out. And now the best we could do is probably get them back to being frozen at something like six months out. That would still be good as long as we could continue to negotiate ongoing with them to keep them permanently in that situation. Um, you know, as my late Uncle Carl said always, people who criticized the deal when in 2015 when we entered into it, because it didn't go on forever. Um, I mean, there's <laughs> there's no uh, agreement that typically goes forever. And if, if it was a 10-year deal, you know, there was plenty of time to negotiate the next deal. So I, you know, what matters is we would need to have full, full IAEA uh, inspection capacity without warning, without limit. It was the JCPOA involved by far the strongest inspection regime that has ever been negotiated. We would need that fully back in place. We would need a clear agreement for uh, Iran to um, be, you know, to be frozen a significant amount away from being able to produce nuclear weapons. And, you know, whether we're, there have been some other issues that haven't been resolved. And I haven't been in Washington in a couple of weeks. The only way I really trust that I, when I get this information is in classified briefing. So I, I can't really say much more about it, except that, um, you know, I'm not calling for the administration to walk away from the table. I think they've been doing a good job at advancing U.S. interests. And I think there are a number of legislators who have taken the APAC line that they're opposed to what the administration is doing. I'm not one of them. Congressman Levin, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time, agreeing to come on Haaretz Weekend, and good luck with the busy weeks and months that you've got ahead of you. Thank you so much, Allison. Take care. And so we come to the end of another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Thanks to my guest, Congressman Andy Levin, to our producer slash editor, Shani Aviram. I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer. Tune in on Monday next week to Haaretz Weekly, hosted by Amir Tibon. And until next time, shalom from Tel Aviv.